Welcome to the One God Report podcast. Bill Schlegel here. The title of this episode is called John chapter 5, verse 18. But he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The podcast is really going to be about the concept of agency, how the main Christology of the Gospel of John is agency, not incarnation. Jesus is God's agent. He's not God in human flesh. There's a Hebrew proverb that says, Hashaliach shave le sholcho. The one sent is equal to his sender. Or another proverb from the Mishnah, Shilucho shel adam kamoto. A man's agent is like unto himself. I originally gave this talk a couple of years ago at the Bible conference in Atlanta, but I've touched it up here. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus healed a lame man at the pools of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Following the miracle, John records in chapter 5, verse 16 to 18, And this was why the Judeans were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Judeans were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John chapter 5, verse 18 has been one of the standard passages that Trinitarians interpret as showing the deity of Jesus. According to the Trinitarian claim, the statement that Jesus made himself equal with God is to be understood that Jesus is co-equal and of the same substance as God, and therefore is God himself. It's often said that the Jewish leaders correctly interpreted Jesus' calling God his Father as a claim to be God. The reason why Jesus couldn't be accused of blasphemy was because he was God, so the claim goes. My position is that neither Jesus calling God his own father, nor the statement about Jesus making himself equal with God, should be understood as a claim of deity, an equality of essence with God. Rather, both Jesus' calling God his own father, and the statement about Jesus being equal with God, should be understood in the light of the law of agency as an equality of representative authority encapsulated in the Hebraic proverb, the one sent is equal to his sender. So a little bit about the law of agency or the shaliach, the one sent, the agent. The main point of the Jewish law of agency is expressed in these Mishnaic and Talmudic references. A person's agent is regarded as the person himself. Here's another quote from the Talmud. Rabbi Yonatan said to him, We have found everywhere in the Torah that the legal status of a person's agent is as of himself. The agent's actions are the will of the sender, and are legally binding. As the Encyclopedia of Jewish Religion says, Therefore, 
any act committed by a duly appointed agent is regarded as having been committed by the principal, unquote. In John chapter 5, the Judean antagonists did not perceive Jesus calling God his own father as a claim to metaphysical deity, but as a claim to be God's human son, the Messiah, God's sent one, God's authorized chief representative. They understood Jesus correctly to be claiming that the work was really done by and for God the Father through his designated agent. But because of pride and jealousy, these Judeans refused to believe Jesus and the amazing accompanying evidence, the miraculous healing, basing their refusal on grounds of an infraction against the Sabbath. These Judeans apparently did not understand why Jesus accomplished the John 5 miracle on a Sabbath. We'll talk more about that later. But first, a few words about being sent in the Bible. Biblical passages which describe God sending humans are best understood in their Hebraic, yea, verily, biblical context. That is, in the messenger or agency motif of the Old Testament, where the prophet is an emissary sent by yod heh God. Yes, angels were sent by God on occasion. Their very name means a messenger. But neither the prophets nor Jesus were angels. The language and context for the human Jesus as sent by God is the Bible. We note a few examples of biblical sending by God. First, Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Unquote. Note also Moses in the context of Korah's rebellion, when the ground was about to swallow up the rebellious. Moses said, quote, Hereby you shall know that yod heh has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. Unquote. Numbers chapter 16, verse 28, compare John 5.30 and 8.28. Jesus said, I do nothing of my own accord. A second example of one sent in the Bible. The law of agency includes both words or commandments and deeds. To the Hebrew mind, words spoken by God's agent are God's words. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 18, 18. God would put his words into the mouth of the prophet like unto Moses. And deeds done by the agent serve as evidence that God has sent the agent, not that the agent is God. Third, the prophets were sent by God. Jeremiah 7.25 From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, Yahweh says, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Fourth, another example, Isaiah the prophet was sent by God. 
Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, compare 48, 16. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. That's Isaiah the prophet. Fifth, although Joseph is not described specifically as being sent by Pharaoh, the relationship between Pharaoh and Joseph illustrates well the law of agency. Pharaoh gave Joseph the evidences of his authority, a signet ring, clothing, a necklace, and set Joseph over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was given Pharaoh's authority, but was not Pharaoh himself. Number six, John the Baptist was sent from God. John chapter one, verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And John 1, 33, he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. A seventh example, the law of agency, sending, is seen in a comparison of Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, and Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, where Jesus will heal the servant of a centurion. Matthew records the incident as if the centurion himself came to Jesus, whereas Luke says the centurion sent elders of the Jews to Jesus. Matthew can say that the centurion was present because the centurion's messengers fully represented the centurion. Military personnel are familiar with the law of agency. The lieutenant can, if granted authority, legally represent a colonel, etc. Eighth, Jesus was sent by God, but Jesus was sent as a son, not just as a servant, as described in the parable of the tenants and the vineyard owner in Matthew chapter 21. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And one last example. The law of agency, even double agency, was stated by Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 20. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Unquote. Jesus said something very similar also in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. So not only from the entire scripture, but specifically in the Gospel of John, we have the language and context of what it means to be sent by God. Being sent by God involves a human being having a special commission from God, coming with the authority of God. Sending language is agency language. The next topic is a bit about the chronological context of this Bethesda healing. By the time of the healing of the lame man at Bethesda, Jesus was already a well-known figure both in Galilee and in Judea. 
Jesus had cleansed the temple and gained a significant popular following of a multitude of disciples in Judea months before the Bethesda healing. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. In John chapter 4, verses 1 and 3. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. Saying that Jesus had more disciples than John means Jesus had thousands of disciples already by John chapter 4 and 5, because we know from Josephus that John the Baptist had thousands of followers. But then in John 5, after a period of ministry in Galilee, Jesus came back to Judea for a Jewish festival. By this time, the Judean leadership the Jews of the Gospel of John, for reasons of pride and jealousy, were against Jesus and desired to discredit him in the eyes of the multitude as a candidate for Messiah. The crux of the Judean leader's argument was this. He can't be God's Messiah. He can't be God's representative agent. He breaks the Sabbath. They used an infraction against their long-standing interpretative religious tradition, how to keep the Sabbath, as a reason not to believe in Jesus, as a reason to discredit Jesus. The next topic, new creation in the Gospel of John. There is a growing recognition, even among traditional Trinitarian Christian commentators, that the Gospel of John presents Jesus as the Messiah through whom God inaugurates the new creation or creation renewal. It's not a demolition of all creation, but it's a renewal of creation. It's the hope of Israel's prophets. For example, Isaiah chapter 65. From the opening words of John's gospel, the correlation of Jesus to the new creation is put forth. In the beginning, John boldly starts out in echo of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. For more evidence that the new creation, that is creation renewal, is a theme that runs from the beginning to the end of the Gospel of John, see my other articles and podcasts on John chapter 1. Links to these articles and podcasts will be in the show notes. Jews expected indeed, still expect, the regeneration of creation to come with Messiah. To the author of the Gospel of John, the words and deeds of Jesus are evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, through whom the regeneration of new life comes. It is the Jesus of the Gospel of John, after all, who states, you must be born again or born from above. In John's Gospel, the new creation has come through Jesus so far only in sample and symbol as evidence of its eventual coming in totality. The making whole or the making complete, words that occur five times in John 5 and also another time in John 7.23, the making whole 
of the lame man in John chapter 5 is a sign that through Jesus, the rejuvenation of creation comes. The great hope of Israel expressed by the prophet Isaiah is here. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 to 6. And now, the Sabbath, finishing the work and new creation, the timing of the miracle in John chapter 5. The prayer of Jesus on the night before his crucifixion, when he prayed, I have finished the work which you gave me to do, John 17, 4. And his last words on the cross, it is finished, John 19, 28, and 30. These words parallel Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. The Sabbath was a sign of the completion of God's work. The Sabbath, therefore, became a hope of the eventual restoration of all to wholeness. But the completion, the restoration, the new creation has not yet come. So in a certain sense, God is yet working. John 5, 17. John 5, 16 says, This was why the Judeans were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The verb tenses, they were persecuting because Jesus was doing express a summary and a continual aspect. The John 5 healing is one example of a continued state of affairs. While the Judean leaders used their interpreted infraction of the Sabbath to oppose Jesus, they missed the significance of Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. Jesus' performance of two Jerusalem miracles described in the Gospel of John, both done on the Sabbath, are signs that Jesus is the one through whom God brings about the new creation, regeneration. Jesus is the one through whom wholeness, completeness, the finishing of God's work, and finally rest comes. In short, the new creation Sabbath comes. The Judean leadership either missed this implication or outright rejected it. I suspect a little of both. And now a few words about the geographical significance to the healing at the pools of Bethesda. The location of the miracle also communicates that Jesus is the son of David, the facilitator of the restored kingdom to come. The Gospels describe only two miracles of Jesus done in Jerusalem. Both are in the Gospel of John. It's interesting. The Synoptic Gospels don't describe in any detail a miracle that Jesus did in Jerusalem. So note that Bethesda, which means the place of mercy or grace or covenant loyalty, is a real place partially excavated today on the north side of the Temple Mount. The two main pools of Bethesda were huge water reservoirs, each pool about 60 by 100 feet in area and about 25 feet deep. The pools caught rainwater during the rainy season, which was to be used during the long, dry summer. 
There may have also been a small spring in the area. The pools were surrounded by five porticos, or colonnaded walkways, probably one on each side and a fifth on a dike separating the pools. So the Bethesda pools are on the north side of the Temple Mount. The Pool of Siloam, on the other hand, where Jesus sent a blind man for healing on the Sabbath, John chapter 9, is located on the southern side of the ancient Davidic Solomonic city. Siloam means sent, surprise, surprise, as not only did Jesus send the man there to be healed, but Jesus is the one sent by God as the agent for the healing. Jesus' two miracles in Jerusalem, both done on the Sabbath, outline the northern and southern limits of the Solomonic city of Jerusalem. These miracles were concrete signs, evidences, samples, tastes, that Jesus is, like Solomon, the promised Son of David, the Son of God, who brings in the kingdom of mankind's desired restoration. The lame will leap, Bethesda, John chapter 5. The blind shall see, Siloam, John chapter 9. I mentioned earlier that there are no miracles of Jesus in Jerusalem described in the Synoptic Gospels. That's not entirely true. In the last week of Jesus' life on earth, just after he cleansed the temple a second time, Matthew 21.14 tells us, quote, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Unquote. On the temple mount where God and his son the king resided, this is the king who brings restoration. Now let's take a quick look at John chapter 5, verses 1 to 16 before we lead up to the statement of Jesus being equal with God. John chapter 5, verse 1 says, After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After this, as mentioned, Jesus has been ministering in Judea and Galilee, and he had many followers. In a sense, he interrupted his Galilean ministry to come to this festival in Jerusalem. There is a festival of the Jews. The fact that John doesn't say which festival this is, while he specifically names all the other festivals that Jesus came to, mentions two Passovers, festival of tabernacles and Hanukkah, this suggests that John wants us to see in Jesus a general fulfillment of all the expectations of the biblical festivals. Like the Sabbath rest, the festivals are reminders of how God worked in the past, how he provides in the present, but also the festivals look forward to the eschatological renewed kingdom on earth. John chapter 5 verse 3 says, In the porticos of the pools of Bethesda lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. Now this is a reminder of the human condition, still longing for restoration. All creation groans for wholeness and completeness to come, as the Apostle Paul says. The proximity to the Temple Mount shows the powerlessness of the priestly religious leadership of Jerusalem 
to do anything about the situation. In contrast to the Jerusalem establishment, the power of God was with Jesus to heal. Compare Luke 5.17 when he healed another paralytic in Galilee. The power of God was with Jesus to heal. It's remarkable that the religious authorities cared little that a lame man had been healed, made whole, in a real sense, given life. Their concern is to discredit Jesus with an infraction against their tradition. They completely miss or ignore the sign, its grandeur and its purpose. Their mindset is evident again when the blind man was given sight in John chapter 9. All they care to prove is, quote, this man, Jesus, is a sinner, unquote. John 9, 16 and 24. The manuscript evidence makes it pretty certain that John 5, 4 was not in the original gospel. The claim that the first one down gets the healing is out of step with the nature of God. Rather, the event shows that Jesus is the channel of restoration, not Jewish mysticism or pagan gods like Asclepius. And now John chapter 5, verse 17 to 18. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Judeans were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Again, Trinitarians claim that Jesus calling God my father and that he was making himself equal with God shows that Jesus claimed to be God. My Revised Standard Version Harper Study Bible section heading says, Jesus claims to be God. But this is a wrong understanding for at least three reasons. First, the meaning of the Greek word ason, translated as equal. Translating, which is interpreting, the Greek word ason as equal is an important issue. The word is used only eight times in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 12, the varying vineyard laborers were made equal by giving each the same amount of payment. Luke chapter 6, verse 34 also describes an equal amount of payment. In Acts eleven seventeen, the same gift, equal gift, was given to both Jews and Gentiles. In Revelation 21, 16, the sides of the new Jerusalem are of equal length. In each case, at least two distinct objects were involved in a comparison. Perhaps the most clarifying use of the word is in Mark chapter 14, verses 56 and 59, where the word means consistent or in agreement to describe the inconsistent testimony of the false witnesses who accused Jesus. Their testimony was not consistent, not equal. It makes better sense to understand the equality of the Father and the Son here, not as a metaphysical equality of divine essence, but as that equality contained in the law of agency, the one sent 
is equal. That is, he's consistent, he's in agreement, and has the same legal authority to the one who sent him. By the way, this is the same word that Paul used in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's likely that Paul means the equality not of essence, but of legal authority that Jesus is granted as the divinely commissioned messenger of God. Compare 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and 28. I suggest that Jesus didn't have to wrangle or manipulate or violently grasp or hold on to that equality because he knew, and he knows now, that God has given him this standing, this authority. No one else can take it away. Which leads to the second reason why traditional Trinitarian interpretation of John 5.19 is wrong. To the Hebraic, biblical mind, calling God my Father is not a claim to deity. That God is called humankind's Father is an essential feature of the Bible. Based on Old Testament revelation, the Jewish people are God's firstborn son, Exodus 4.22, Hosea 11.1. Isaiah states clearly, you, Yudhe are our Father, Ata Yodhevave Avinu, Isaiah 63.16. The fatherhood of God is likewise consistently expressed in the New Testament. Jesus speaks of your Father who is in heaven and instructs his disciples to pray our Father in heaven. Near the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus declared, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, John 20, 17. To the biblical mind, the fatherhood of God is metaphorical, representing God's role as the giver of life and all that is encapsulated in the father-child relationship. Things like intimacy, concern, discipline, care, and not the least of which, representation and inheritance. The son represents the father and inherits the father's property. In comparison to the Hellenist or Greek mind, the fatherhood of God is metaphysical, having to do with substance and essence. Dionysus, for instance, since he is the son of Zeus, is divine in essence. He was a demigod, a god-man. It was in this Hellenistic way that the church fathers of later centuries incorrectly interpreted the fatherhood of God in relation to Jesus. To the Trinitarian, God the Father is a title used to differentiate between persons of a multi-person Godhead. To the Trinitarian mind, God the Father means not God the Son and not God the Spirit. But this is not biblical. The biblical fatherhood of God, the reason God is called the Father, is to describe the relationship of the one God to humankind. Many commentators have noticed the somewhat rare singular personal pronoun in Jesus' words, my Father, 
Jews refer to God collectively as our Father, but rarely with the singular pronoun my Father. But is Jesus' use of the singular pronoun my a reason for us to jump over into the Hellenistic realm of father-son relationship as essence? The answer is clearly no, because there is a Hebrew-minded, a biblical precedent to calling God my father. To call God my father in the Hebraic biblical world is not a claim to deity, and the Judean listeners would know this. Rather, based on the Hebrew scriptures, calling God my father can be a claim to being the Messiah. God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7.14 that David's descendant will be my son and I will be his father. In Psalm 2.7, yud heh vav heh says of the Messiah, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And in Psalm 89.26, the Davidic king will call out to yud heh vav heh saying, You are my father, my God. Jews knew, or should have known, that the Messiah would call God my father. As the messianic son, Jesus' my father is a claim to represent the father, being vested with the father's full authority. The antagonistic listener's claim is not, He claims to be God! Blasphemy! Not to be overly disparaging, but that is an interpretation of John 5 that a Gentile Hellenist might come up with, being predisposed to interpret biblical language through a Hellenistic lens, or ignorant of what the fatherhood of God means in the Bible. Rather, the Judeans' claim is, He can't be Messiah, who will call God my father. He can't be God's agent son equal to the sending father in legal authority, since he breaks the Sabbath this way. The Judean leaders want to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the multitude. The Judean leaders believe they have an excuse to reject Jesus' messianic claims. Someone who is God's agent wouldn't do the things that God himself wouldn't do. Neither would the Messiah do things that God did not commission him to do. The Messiah wouldn't break our Sabbath. The Judean leader's view is summed up well in their statement following the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. Referring to Jesus, they said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. John 9.16 And then they claim, We know that this man is a sinner. John 9.24. The question is, is Jesus the Messiah, not is Jesus literally God? The Judeans had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. John 9.22. We might pause to ask, was Jesus breaking the Sabbath? I believe we could answer yes and no. Yes, Jesus might be said to have broken the Sabbath as this particular group of Judeans had defined it. 
While I don't need to argue with most English translations that say that Jesus broke the Sabbath, the Greek word for broke is luo, which can have the sense of break, but its main meaning is related to loosen, untie, unbind. Jesus said, whatever you loosen on earth will be loosed in heaven. So translating this word as to break the Sabbath may be an unnecessarily strong translation. To loosen the Sabbath suggests there was a difference in interpretation of how the Sabbath was to be kept. I don't see in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the use of this word luo in connection to breaking the Sabbath. We won't go into legal definitions of if a person can heal or not on the Sabbath. Here, Jesus healed by only speaking. Or how heavy a burden was allowed on the Sabbath. But the religious leadership used Jesus' attitude toward their traditional interpretation of the Sabbath against him. On the other hand, no, Jesus didn't break the Sabbath because he kept it in the way that the Father intended for the Messiah. The Sabbath accusation is really a question of authoritative tradition. Whose definition of keeping Sabbath is correct? The religious leadership's, or at least a segment thereof, or Jesus's? As mentioned above, the religious leadership missed the reason that Jesus did these restoration deeds on the Sabbath, that is, the miraculous making whole of a lame man on the Sabbath showed Jesus to be the agent of new creation restoration. One other comment about John 5.18. There is some uncertainty if the statement in John 5.18, quote, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, unquote, is to be understood as only the attitude of the Judean leaders, or if this was the belief of the author. That is, did the author make this statement and consider it to be correct? I think, in fact, this is the view of the author, that by calling God his father, Jesus was claiming an equality with God, the equality of the authorized and equipped, sent human agent, as we have described here, not an equality of metaphysical essence. Let's also point out that God here does not mean the Trinity. God, not just one member of a Godhead, is Jesus' Father. Like in the other over 1,300 times that the word God appears in the New Testament, God means the Father and never the Trinity. In John 5.18, Jesus is in fact differentiated from God. The equality that Jesus has is with God, or actually to God. Not because Jesus also is God but because God has authorized and equipped the human Messiah to represent him. I will stop here for now, and in part two of this podcast, we will see 
that in the remainder of John chapter 5, the context and the language is all about agency, about Jesus being the sent one of God. Who Jesus is in the Gospel of John is not incarnation, God in flesh, but agency. God is represented by the man, Christ Jesus. Yishma'u anavim ve'yismahu. The humble will hear and rejoice.